Trends and Tensions, presented by BHDP, where we discuss trends in architectural and interior design and the competing priorities or tensions that arise from integrating new ideas into existing organizations, enterprises, and institutions. On today's episode, we offer part two of our continued discussion regarding wellness in the workplace with Patrick Donnelly of BHDP and joining us by phone, Rex Miller of MindShift, author of The Healthy Workplace Nudge. If you enjoy what you hear, we encourage you to rate, subscribe, and give us a review. We also invite your suggestions of other architectural and interior design-related topics. I am your host, Brian Trainer, a workplace strategist for BHDP. Let's get started. What I want to know, so one of the chapters I was drawn to in the book is chapter 7, and it's called Where's the Data? Um and subtitled Inconvenient Truths. And I thought that was fascinating. My 80s pop culture love, I read like, where's the beef? Only it's where's the data? And it says Inconvenient Truths. And as I was reading through this, I realized that there is a, the wellness industry itself is a giant uh, organization. We're talking in the trillions of dollars. There's a lot of money being made. And there's also seems to be a lot of grandiose claims being made but it doesn't seem that there's any data that supports that. Can you speak to that a little bit more, Rex? Yeah, there's a whole chapter on it. Well, uh, obviously. Was, <laughs> you know, and, and a lot of us started out with the same memes, like, you know, you've heard if you spend a dollar in, in wellness efforts, you'll get $3 in return. Uh, that's probably the most common meme, so I'll use that one because people have probably heard of it. I spent... I spent more than six months trying to find the source, you know, the, 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 the origin of that. And I found all these circular references, you know, people referencing themselves and one another through all kinds, you know, the Society, of Human Health, the Society of Human Resource Management, Tribune Magazine. And it boils down, one of the original sources was a Harvard research paper that was retracted because it was proven false and and so it, it just doesn't exist and if it did if 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 it was true that you've got a three dollar return and and i've seen up up to six and seven dollars in return for that it makes intuitive sense you know it's it has some intuitive logic to it but there's no no data that supports it and and you'd have to first of all find out, you know, what was your, uh, what was the test based on? What was the baseline? Uh, how did you con? What, who was your control group? Uh, who measured it? You know, was it a, a vendor or internally? All these things. So you'd have to do a lot of work. The other organization that came closest to where this claim was, I spoke to their head of, of uh, organizational health and safety. Um, who'd been there 12, 13 years, and said, we've heard of this, but we've never seen, you know, and we've been told we're, we're the source of it, but we have no idea where it came from. Then you look at the RAND report, and you look at the National Institute of Health Science, uh, the report they did in, in the state of Illinois, and it not only does not support that, it, it says the opposite, that... that uh, that it's expensive with no benefit um, and no improvement in health outcomes or lowering cost. I'm following my curiosity here, and sometimes it goes in weird directions because I'm coming back to what Patrick talked about too, is um, 
leading well. And we talk about engaging leadership in this level of change. And in the book, it also suggests that sometimes change comes from uh, when you want to have an impact on the culture, it's better to do this nudge. Like, why is it a nudge and not a push? Um, because when I think of leadership impacting a change, that's more of a, a push or a shove or a follow me. Um, yeah, no, that's, a, that's a good point. Well, so we thought about that a good bit. And what we found, what we felt that, first of all, uh, we used what we call a domino nudge theory, <clears throat> where we start with the small pieces like uh, choice architecture and reducing friction points. Those are things that anybody can do without big budgets or hierarchical approval and things like that. When you look at what it takes to do an effective wellness program, and we've, we've got the 10-step program and we've got, you know, we've got Cleveland Clinic's program in there, and they're very effective, and they, it is very heavy-handed, and it is strong leadership. But when we talked about the possibility of leadership being engaged, knowledgeable, persistent, present, all the things that leadership would have to do, we said, boy, that's a, it's going to be a rare company <laughs> that, that has that great leadership. And as soon as that leader changes, then it's a sandcastle. We call these sandcastle solutions. That We do see these things for a period of time work, and then uh, the economy changes or the leader changes, and it gets washed away. So our solution was what, what can happen? How do you shift the ecosystem? Um, and it's, it's more of a systems approach than it is a top-down hierarchy approach. Now, if you've got great leadership, all the better. And we do say that, you know, 5% of organizations have this robust, not only competencies to do this, but, but leadership commitment to do it. J&J is a great example of a company that's got it together. Cummins is another. Um, but... We, we shifted the focus from looking at the real issue is stress and culture and creating environments that, that create more psychological safety and reducing stress than getting people up and walking and, and drinking water and stuff like that. That's a secondary benefit, but it has such a, such a marginal positive effect versus reducing stress. Right, and stress is that is, stress is the killer? That's the victim. Stress is the killer, and is that um, created by the friction points in the architecture, or is that just a subset of the job? Um, like, what is a, a building friction point? Finding resources, or or having to cooperate across departments, and having to go up the chain to get somebody to help you because it's not in their budget or whatever. All those are friction points in the system, or just finding somebody, or finding the right resource within an organization, or coming up to a place that, you know, was designed to be open, collaborative, and friendly, but you walk up to it and you're not sure, to, to, can I really, you know, like a, like a play area. So GoDaddy right. learned that their recreational area, because it was in the back, uh, was not getting used, because the unintended signal was you must be sneaking off to do something uh, naughty. So they brought that whole kind of recovery recreation area to the very front. It's on the second floor, but it's very front area. It's the first thing you walk off or walk up the stairs and see to communicate the direct message of this is for everybody. And, 
and so everybody uses it. Those are friction points. Understood. We we had a similar thing with a client where we'd created um, bump points we for casual collaboration, and they were along a main access line. Um, and when we went back to do a post-occupancy survey, they weren't using it. And it turned out the reason they weren't using it is because they perceived that their manager would think that they weren't working at the time. Yep. And so yep. then the nudge came hey, to the managers, why don't you have your next meeting there? And once management made it okay, that rolled out. Does that play into the leading well coalition building? Like, So one of the things is when you have a good leader, I heard sandcastles, and this is where I'm going with this. Um, when you have one leader that gets excited about something and they start it and then they leave, then it's gone. But when you're talking about leading well and you build a coalition, suddenly you're spreading that over more people. Is that the, the thought behind that? Or Patrick, can you speak to that? So this, this connects the uh, research that Rex mentioned on change your space, change your culture with this book, which is about healthy workplace nudge. The way they connect is that um, really culture is individual behaviors rolled up into a universal truth or a universal way of looking at the world that says this is what's important here. What um, organizations need to sustain this is a lot of individual behavioral change that people understand that this is the new norm. And that's what coalition building is about, where you do enough work on defining all the different parts and the pieces that make change happen, and then clearly communicate that. And communicating isn't just speaking and telling people things, it's also listening and understanding um, people and their experience of what's going on in the change in an organization. Um, you know, I work with a lot of leaders, and most leaders that, that I work with say that coming up with the vision is the easy part. It's making it everybody's vision. That's the hard part. And um, what uh, this book does is it outlines not only the crisis that we're in related to wellness, well-being, but also begins to lay out some strategies that um, will enable organizations to do their part in, in turning some of this around. Um, I also think uh, one of the, the big issues that we come up with in workplace design all the time is um, the need to attract and retain talent. And when you have an organization whose culture embraces health and wellness as a meaningful aspect of what they care about, um, that really speaks volumes to talent you're trying to retain and talent that you're trying to attract. And then I would say that the, the last piece that really relates to what Rex shared is this, um, this idea of choice architecture. And I think what you, design really does lead people, either puts up barriers to the way you would use something or enables people to use it properly or make choices that are more intuitive and are less stressful. When you enable less stress in the workplace, so more choice, enabling people to interact, access to others, that leads to better decision making. A lot of what slows down organizations is simply the ability to make decisions and make them stick. So when you create an architecture that relates to the culture of an organization that really embraces this idea of well-being, you can imagine over time, 
not in an instant, but over time, utilizing the design of a space so that those kind of behaviors become the norm, the culture changes and wellness and well-being just becomes a part of it. That's great, because so what I hear then is that culture, behavior, and wellness are so intertwined Correct. that it's inescapable to not design around those uh, features, right? So, so and that becomes the core right. of the conversation to design with those features. Those things take time to change. When you right. design something like a workplace, many of those changes are going to be in place for a long time. So that's why working with a futurist like Rex and other thought leaders to try to understand the future is so important because that place that you're creating is going to impact behavior for some time to come. Sure. So we want to design that to an ideal future state for that organization to, to live in, to behave in, mm -hmm. um, so that that actually becomes part of the transformation. And it takes us back full circle to CBRE. And what they had was a framework to ask the question, how do we live and work healthier together? And the distinction we made in the book in looking at cultures that focus on wellness, for example, cultures of health versus healthy cultures. And that's a different conversation. What I like about this book, um, as I'm going through it, it feels like it's a series of vignettes, right? Mm -hmm. Each chapter has some subchapters, and those subchapters tell stories. Um, you were talking about Dr. Roizen before, how he was the one who um, basically dropped the bomb on you. He gave you, or the, the storm, as it were. He showed you the impending storm. Um, before we go, was, did he offer any solutions to that? Or was it all gloom and doom? No, I mean, Cleveland Clinic is a good example of an organization that has has flattened and begun to decline the the, the curve the cost curve of of health and with very tangible numbers and and they're actually they've started their own insurance company health insurance co-op that if you adopt the Cleveland Clinic approach their methodology which we describe in the book right then that'll, you know, then you'll have lower cost premiums and, and virtually, I don't want to say guaranteed health outcomes, but if you follow their process, this is what you can expect. And they've got enough uh, proof in the pudding to do that. Right. Um, that is, you know, that'll be a great solution for some companies that have the rigor and the commitment to do that. Um, but we know, you know, we know that most companies won't because it's a long, it's a long process. I know we want to, yeah. It's yeah, it's a, a long play and, and it takes a lot. Sure. So that went, and specifically that story is chapter 13, you know, and it lays out step by step what that Cleveland right. Clinic process is. So that's yep. in the book. So it starts out with the scenario where we are, we lead into um, what the realities of the information are, how a lot of consulting, uh, wellness professionals are literally, it, I, I hesitate, but I want to say snake oil salesmen um, to a degree uh, where it's hard to deliver what they've promised, but then it leads to better solutions. Um, is that a good soft arc to uh, like, is that a quick snapshot of how this book lays out or am I oversimplifying it? Well, I think anybody who reads the book uh, will walk away with a clear understanding of the threat 
to corporate vitality. You know, right. you, you need healthy, happy employees to do well. They'll understand why it's important. Uh, they'll understand where the shortcomings are on a lot of the current programs that they're trying to use, what the industry offers. Uh, and they'll have some idea on how to shift their culture without going to huge expense or lots of change management. You know, my, my proposition, if you didn't have to go through change management, if you could affect 100% of your employees, if it costs less than what you're spending on wellness programs, would you be interested? <laughs> um, and I have yet to have anybody say, uh, we're, we're happier doing what we're already doing. Um, I mean, it's, it's just a no-brainer. Sure. So the, the last uh, enticement will be the, the research we've done since on what we're calling the corporate athlete and recovery and performance and the amount of strain that white-collar work has on us that we just don't take into account. I've begun to track, I'm using two sports bands, and we talk about it in the book a little bit, but I've been tracking whether it's keynote presentations or workshops as if they were a sports event. The cognitive and emotional load on our bodies is equivalent to the physical load that an athlete experiences. Uh, we're just not addressing that in the workplace in a way um, that produces healthy outcomes for employees. So I'll leave you with that as an enticement for a future conversation. That is a great enticement. I'm wondering how you ice a sore brain from thinking too much about <laughs> design problems. But, um, yeah, do you use hot <laughs> heat or do you use ice? But, yeah, I, I understand that analogy very That's well. That's great. Thanks for that. Well, thank you, Rex Miller, for joining okay. us today. Um, right, Rex, appreciate your time. Thanks, buddy. Okay, Patrick, good talking with you. Same here. Talk soon. So, Pat, your experience in writing this book or being part of this process, mm -hmm. were there any um, thing, did you have any aha moments yourself? Yeah, I think corporately, um, as a group of thought leaders, um, you know, beginning at the Mayo Clinic yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and really getting a dose of what's going on out there in the world of um, health and wellness and well-being sure. was a real eye-opener to the entire group. So much so that many of us reflected on our own health journey, um, many of which, you know, many of us had not had major health setbacks or were in the midst of something where I think many of us dealt differently with it. I think Rex encouraged that. I think the mind shift process, because you're bringing what you know uh, to add to the collective effort, causes you to reflect individually. I think it's changed the way I approach workplace strategy and design though we at BHDP focus on people, to expand it from wellness to well-being and really to be m more cognizant of the fact that what we design affects not only the physical wellness but the emotional wellness of the people that we design it for Sure, uh, was a huge upside for me. And I think in the end, the idea that uh, this is a journey and that requires a nudge and not a shove, right. which you um, <laughs> highlighted earlier, is a, an, imp an important point because all of us know, whether it's individually or corporately, how we can make change happen in a prototype or as an event. But to make it a system and to make it something that's sustainable requires the participation of everyone. So sure. a follow-up conversation could also be 
um, how do we enable that conversation to happen? And how does that open conversation enable everyone to um, really contribute to what, you know, corporately the culture needs to become? And how does placemaking uh, uh, enable us to do that? So here's a, an abstract question, or maybe not that abstract. Is wellness the same to every company? You know, we've talked about innovation and culture uh, uh, being different to each organization. They have to find their own de definition. Is wellness different, or is it the same for everyone? You know, I think um, in many ways it has a lot to do with what the company does. I mean, you can imagine, um, and we toured and benchmarked Converse, for example, where you're, you make gym shoes. So <laughs> health and wellness is core to what you do. So everywhere from what the mission is and what it embodies to who the leader is and what they embody literally impact your ability to, to do this. I think when we use design thinking and we use strategy uh, to engage in a conversation, I think you can also uncover what's going on in the core of the company and understand what people truly care about. And little by little, project by project, if we're paying attention to that and highlighting what we hear, um, that can also influence um, health, wellness, and well-being in the workplace. So if you take those three factors, right? Right. What is the core mission of the company and what do they do? Who are the leaders and how do they perceive or how do you engage in a conversation about that or take their own personal attitude about health and wellness um, out into the workplace? And then how do you engage and have a conversation with the core of the company? Those three factors can um, enable any initiative relative to health and wellness to be successful. Thank you for listening to Trends and Tensions presented by BHDP. If you enjoyed what you heard, please rate, subscribe, and give us a review. We hope you will join us again as we continue to have constructive conversations on another episode of Trends and Tensions.